Welcome to Season 1, Episode 13 of the Red Diamond Report Podcast. I'm your host, Wilson Jackson. Today we have another exciting episode for you. I sat down with Kyrus Brown. He considers himself a jack-of-all-trades. Brown is a business owner, but also does work in real estate and entertainment and has experience working with college students in higher education. However, what Brown is most notable for is owning his own business, Kyrus Customs, which allows him to design and tailor men's business, casual, and formal wear. While he stays busy, he likes to keep things simple in life, but ultimately wants to improve his family's legacy. Sit back and get ready to listen as he discusses growing up in the Mississippi Delta, the power of mentorship, owning Kyrus Customs, higher education, and more. This is Season 1, Episode 13 of the Red Diamond Report Podcast, A Tailored Way of Life. Let's get it. Welcome to the Red Diamond Report podcast with your host, Wilton Jackson. And today we have Mr. Kyrus Brown. I've had the privilege of knowing Kyrus for quite some time now. You know, we, our days, you know, go back to when I was at USM. He, he was graduated from USM at the time, but we share a, a bond between our fraternity, uh, Cap Alpha Psi. And uh, Kyrus, it is good to have you on the, on the show today. I really appreciate it, man. Thank you also um, for the opportunity, man. And, um, as I always tell you, man, I'm very proud of you, but I'm not surprised at all, man. So keep doing what you're doing. But thank you for um, sharing your platform with me. Iris, tell the people, like I said, I know who you are, but tell the people a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, um, I'm, I'm I'm a country boy. I'm from the Mississippi Delta originally, um, Mount Bayou, um, by way of Winstonville um, in Cleveland. Um, graduated from Eastside High School, um, dear old Eastside. Um, I went to, um, you know, Mississippi Delta Community College, double majored in business, fashion, then graduated, transferred to Southern Miss and um, double majored again, also business and fashion. Um, but uh, ultimately, man, you know, I'm kind of like, um, I, I would say a lot of people compare me to like a, a Forrest Gump. If everybody had watched the movie to, you know, Forrest Gump, yep. I've had um, some very interesting life experiences that has allowed me to um, meet a lot of interesting people uh, from, 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 you know, your regular blue collar person to a lot of people that make claim that certain people have a certain, you know, um, esteem about themselves, whatever, you know, probably associated to, you know, whatever um, um, craft or, 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 um, or, or profession that one may have. But um, ultimately, man, I'm, I'm just a, a very easygoing, laid back country boy, man, from the Mississippi Delta. Um, I've had the opportunities to work in corporate America for Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies um, in higher education for over a decade. Um, that's over in international departments and, and being a liaison for um, the Immigration Customs and Exchange Program but also a business owner of um, multiple businesses from entertainment um, to real estate to also um, men's tailoring and clothing. So, um, like I said, uh, kind of like a Forrest Gump kind of character. If you all have seen the movie, man, Forrest, he, he done it all. And I kind of like the movie Forrest Gump. Um, it's actually one of my um, favorite movies because I try to live my life how Forrest did. And that's to keep very, keep things very simple and simplistic. And if you think, you know, uh, I think a lot of people try to complicate their situations, man. But if you, if you know who you are 
and you know what you're capable of, that's when you will get the things that you deserve in life. And things kind of just fall into place for you, man, when you stay in your lane, like Forrest did in a movie. <laughs> no, that's actually a good way to look at it because he definitely did that. And and to know, you know, basically everything that you've said, you've been able to venture in different, you know, avenues of life from business to um, higher education. Um, and then also with, you know, the fashion, uh, fashion ideas and, and, and the business. But I know that you've probably had several, you know, mentors or people that have guided you or mentored you through each one of these avenues. Who would you say were, you know, some of your mentors and like, how have they shaped you in allowing you to be the person that you've become? Um, mentors are, uh, are definitely important, man. Um, some of my first um, earliest mentors was my great grandfather, um, Henry Perkins Senior. God bless his soul. He was really my first father figure. My mom had me relatively young, you know, for the most part. Um, eventually, my mom got married, so my father that raised me, Dr. Nathaniel Brown, he was a mentor, as well as um, you know, my biological father, Larry Belton. Um, those are all mentors, but you know, I've had you know, mentors that spanned across, you know, different uncles, cousins, you know, um, you know, close friends, older friends, um, you know, my Uncle Hal, um, you know, my Uncle Dre, um, uh, my Uncle Perk, um, and, and just so on and so forth, man. Mentorship comes about when you see genuine people who have already taken some of the routes that you've inspire to go to or that you probably don't even know you're going to go into um, a lot of mentors see things within mentees before they even take that journey and what a wise person would do is 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 basically they will listen you know you got two ears and two eyes for a reason more than one mouth and you know that's to me you should listen and, and and watch as much as you talk you know for the most part and I've always had the um, ability, um, I guess because it's just innate in me, I'm, I'm very observant. I'm a very observant person. You know, growing up, I kind of had the stigma of being in the stereotype of being stuck up, but that's not the case. Um, I just look at, I watch everything, you know, for the most part. I'm a very observant person. And typically mentorship um, comes about of being very observant and open. Um, you know, I didn't grow up, you know, with the internet, you know, I remember life before the internet, <laughs> you know, I'm that old, <laughs> uh, I'm not ashamed to say it, but you know, um, I wasn't afforded um, the technology that we all have today growing up. So a lot of things when it comes to mentorship was hands-on, but I tell, you know, a lot of my mentees and I tell any other person that will listen, mentorship is not about just face-to-face, peer-to-peer. Um, I have a lot of mentors that I have never met in my life. Um, they're mentors from afar. You know, they're mentors on the Internet. They're mentors that I've read. You know, I've never met these people, but these people have, you know, displayed their um, their highs and their lows and their successes and their failures based upon, you know, their work. And you can learn from that. So mentorship is not necessarily someone that you can actually, you actually have to know, you know, mentors are from afar as well. And that's what technology, you know, um, kind of gives us the opportunity to have for the most part. So I've had a long list of, of mentors and um, I don't waste any of their time. And that's very important for people who look and seek for mentorship is that if you want someone to help you, it can't be on your time. It can't be on your accord. It has to be on the person that you're looking for the help from. 
And I'm sure within these mentors, they've poured into you a lot to, you know, granted, you know, to help you become the man that you become, because, you know, being a Mississippi native myself, um, but, you know, growing up in Jackson, I know, you know, I've talked to different people growing up that have grown up in the Mississippi Delta, and they always say that, you know, they never forget where they've come from, but they also know they've learned some things along the way from mentors or just growing up the way, you know, that they did in their childhood to remind them and, and to keep them grounded on where they're still going. And so I'm going to pose the question to you. What keeps you grounded daily? Um, my family's legacy that keeps me definitely grounded, man, um, knowing that it's, it's much bigger than me, um, especially now being a new parent. Um, I've always wanted to be married. I've always wanted to have a family um, because I've always inspired since I was young. My life's goal was to improve my family's legacy um, financially, spiritually, intellectually. And um, and also just in health, and um, not in that order, but those were my fame, my my four main areas to improve my family's legacy. So, uh, what keeps me grounded uh, are, are keeping those things in perspective and working towards those things for the most part. And knowing now that I have someone solely dependent upon me and my wife, which is our child. Um, it's a very humbling experience, man, to have someone to solely depend upon you. Um, and I, I'm a humble person by nature, even though I can flip the switch and show my charisma and show my confidence. But I'm always humble, man. I think being humble is one of the most intimate relationships one can have with God. Um, you know, when you at a calmness and you at a state of peace because you're humble, but at the same time you're confident, you can kind of see things and envision things before they happen. Right. You know, and that keeps me grounded, knowing that it's much bigger than me, and I don't really get caught up in the semantics and also in the superficial things that you know um, of the world. You know, for the most part, you know, when I wake up, I don't think about 20 years from now. I think about 200 years from now. Um, because my great grandmother, she's still living. She's um, uh, she's ninety seven, um, and her great grandmother was a slave, you know. And you know her name was um, you know Sarah Coleman, Sadie Coleman, and she was born um, eighteen fifty. Now here we are in two thousand and twenty, and the fact that I can touch my great-grandmother and her great-grandmother was a slave that just shows you that 200 years is really nothing you know it's 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 at the blink of an eye so those are some of the things that keep me grounded man what's it what's it been like being a, a young father now not only being a young father but being a african-american father in today's climate um you know it's again man it's it's humbling man like for real for real um you know, if you ask my mom and my father, you know, I was a rambunctious child, but I was still a very obedient child. Um, you know, I was just inquisitive. I was just observant. Um, you know, I was kind of like the black sheep of the family. However, I really didn't try to give my mom too many issues. You know, I was very doted upon, too, because I was the first great grandchild. I was first grandchild. I was my mother's first child. So I had a lot of love. You know, I had a lot of support. Um and just to see that now I'm in the position of having my first child, me and my wife, um, again, is very humbling. Um, the added point of, you know, being an African-American uh, African -American father, um, it really sits home with me, man, because I've always wanted to have a girl and a boy in that order, even though whatever God, you know, and the ancestors were blessed us with, we've been more than more than appreciative and happy. 
with being now that, you know, I do have a daughter first. Um, everyone's been telling me like, man, how you feel? And I, I'm like, you know, she's perfection. And before this, I would, I wouldn't say anything as such as perfection. I wouldn't, you know, say, hey, look, that's perfect. You know, um, but I can really say now, genuinely, sincerely, my daughter is perfection because she has been tainted by the world, you know. Um, and me being an African-American father, which is very, very important, um, I feel like it is, um, it's my job to protect and provide alongside with my wife as she nurture and educate and, and, and try to let my child have her innocence as long as she can until she goes out to the real world. And when she start to in, in, encounter things that may taint her, she will be well equipped and prepared to be able to fend and defend, fend and, and, and go out and do for herself in the world. So as an African-American you know, father, I know that I have to give my daughter a different perspective. I have to raise her what I will quote unquote call the real world. And I'm happy where I'm from, which is the Mississippi Delta. I always say that the Mississippi Delta is a microcosm of the world when it relates to race, you know? Um, so me being who I am, and if you know me personally, you already know how some of my worldly views are, especially when it comes to being black, you know, I always tell people I'm the lightest black man you ever meet, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, and being that, you know, my daughter, you know, would be in my company, I, I feel, you know, confident that she, she would be prepared when she go out to the real world. What would you say is the hardest thing that you've wrapped your mind around now that you are a father? I mean, I know you mentioned that, you know, making sure that she holds on, that your daughter holds on to her innocence as long as she can um, in terms of adapting to the world. But what's the, 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 the hard fact that knowing that you're a father now, like, like what, what, what comes to your mind when you think about that? Um, I suffer from anxiety, man, you know, since I was very young, since, you know, probably since I can remember, probably since, you know, my preteen days. But my anxiety kind of weighs strong on me, man, because I know that my wife and I, we won't be there, you know, all the time, you know. And just seeing some of the things that I've done in the past, nothing was never malicious that I've, you know, done to anyone. But, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect as well. But um, my mother, my father's, my my family, they did raise me right. Um, I just know no matter how much we give her, which is good, and how much love that we have around her, she's still going to encounter some type of evil in the world. And it's hard for me to accept. And my anxiety weighs on me because, you know, I want my baby to be able to pass when she encounters evil. You know what I'm saying? Right. And I'm confident she will, but it's still it's still an enigma. It's still a question mark that's out there knowing that I won't be able to protect her in every situation like I want to, you know, for the most part. You have you you have your on your own business, Kyra's Customs. Yeah. I mean, I can just attest for those that are that will be listening to this episode, the man has some of the best suits that you can imagine. And that's not just me saying that. That's just the truth. That's just the, the cold hard facts, you know. I appreciate it. And it's just like, you know, 
what how much goes into that on a daily basis i mean even factoring in you know that we're in a covid environment like what's that process like man the process you know it, it's very tedious um it's very meticulous and um it's very you know labor intensive but um with a lot of love is goes into it as well you know for the most part um i've been around fashion my entire life for the most part um like i said some of the first people i named who were mentors like my great-grandfather my father um you know they were very you know stylish people you know my, my grandfather he was the quintessential southern gentleman he always wore fedora hat um you know he was he was you know a very sharp person you know very just clean and and just dressed um appropriately for for whatever the occasion may be as well as my biological father Larry you know he he um retired as a dean at Jackson State but you know the uh, during his retirement roughly about 12 years ago he was um deemed the cleanest man to ever walk Jackson State's campus you know for the most part um not only did you know he retired there as an employee um uh, for over 30 some years um he also went to Jackson State when it was Jackson State College back in the 60s so um you know my father he was a huge inspiration as well the the craft of just making you know clothing um is just like anything else as far as any creator you know um like yourself you know you are um not only uh, i would say like a media person but you're a journalist also um and that within itself is creativity on how you structure a story you know um in the time that goes into that story and it's no different than what i do when it comes to just creating clothes you know for the most part um i can't say that i'm i'm i'm, I'm privileged to kind of have it in my dna you know for the most part and it right. comes to me very easy um but i also had to work at it too and i still work at it and that that goes again to the devout love of um what i do um you know, I, I get a lot of people who always ask, you know, uh, man, teach me how to do this and teach me how to do that. And that I, it's almost like if someone to if someone was to approach you and say, hey, man, teach me how to be a journalist. Like, even though you know how to do it, it's yeah. kind of like it's something I can't teach you. It's right. like something you have to already want to know how to do. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I do. Like, it's it's like just you know growing up playing sports like no one taught me how to shoot a basketball or throw a baseball like I did it initially on my own now I had coaches to show me how to do it better but for me to start off doing it is just something that I did and that's how it came to me when I was about 11 or 12 years old of making clothing I was around it and then ultimately man I just started doing it and you know, here I am now, you know, 20 plus years later. Right. What would you say is, you know, what you enjoy the most in terms of making, whether it's a, a jacket or a suit or uh, some of the other garments that you like to make? What would you say is your favorite? Um, you know, I, I would probably say it depends on the season. Um, but I would say overall, man, a suit, you know, the suit is a businessman uniform, you know. It's the gentleman's uniform, you know, right. for the most part. So um, it's kind of like sweet potato pies, man. I'm just 
using this reference because it's almost a holiday time and you know every grandma and auntie and mama gonna you know they're gonna cook sweet potatoes <laughs> sweet right. potato pies in the next you know week or two for thanksgiving right, but right. it's it's like you know everybody has their twist and their um recipe on how their sweet potato pie should taste and you know the suit in which you know i construct I have my twist on it too, but it's a classic uniform, you know, that's known worldwide. You bring up a valid point. As a kid, I can just remember growing up, we had these really big suits, three button suits, yeah. four buttons. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you think back, you know, I, as I've gotten older, I've looked, I look back sometimes and say in the sixties and seventies, they had the two button suits or, you know, because yeah. you, you rarely might find a three button suit now, but for yeah. the most part, they're going to be two button suits. Do you ever think we'll go back to more than two button suits? Yeah. 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 Um, we always will here, here, here in um, the double breast suit, which is standard, a six button suit. That's, it's a classic um, Italian and English style suit, you know, um, Parisian too. All those are European countries. So they all fall up on the Europe, but um, mainly Italian and also um, in English. But um, the so the way like now, you know, um, 10 years ago, we was in the fitted, you know, um, culture where everything was more so tight. Right. Um, and it still is now. However, you can see the bagginess is back in style now, you know, with the baggy oversized sweatsuits, you know, sweatshirts um, for the most part. So, you know, here in America, we always revisit styles that typically are, are 20 years to 10 years behind what we just left. It's like now people are wearing jerseys, throwback jerseys, okay? Um, I don't want to tell my age. I don't mind telling my age, but <laughs> when I was in college, that's when the throwback jerseys came about. And that was 20 years ago, almost when I started college. Right now, when we were wearing those jerseys in the early 2000s, most of those jerseys were from the early 80s and the late 70s. So that was 20 years behind when I what was actually you know born right? right right so we replicate and revisit styles usually 15 to 20 years prior to when we leave them. so i would say probably in the next you know five to ten years three button four button suits you know like the steve harvey suits they 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 gonna come back in style for the most part <laughs> you know but a classic two button suit is 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 timeless it should be in every man's wardrobe for, for a man that considers himself a businessman or even just a man who wants to look good, what would you say are the basic suits that every man should have? Um, the basic suits, all men should have at least a navy suit or charcoal suit, charcoal gray. The reason being is because those are universal colors. Um, you can match black and brown with them for the most part. A lot of people think that black should be your first suit, but that's that's not true. Black is a it's a dominant color. It's the essence of which all color come from. So it's a very overpowering suit. So it's typically deemed for like very formal events for the most part. But you know, universal suits that you can go into a business setting or even a casual setting would be your navies and also your charcoal grays. Those are you know standard. The third suit option you should have is more so a black suit, and that's for formal events for the most part. 
Um, I always recommend um, white dress shirts or a French or corporate blue dress shirt. Um, and if the suit is solid, um, you can kind of play with the tie, meaning you can, you know, have some designs or some colors in it. Um, if the suit has some type of print, like if it's a window pane or a pinstripe suit, make sure the tie is solid, you know, for the most part, um, because you don't want your clothes competing with one another for the right. most part. Um, right. Only, you know, very professional people can really pull off multiple patterns and let it complement one another, you know, for the most part. Um, but, you know, just for your genuine, I mean, not gen genuine, your general just, you know, approach to dressing and wardrobe, you know, you just want to try to not have things clash and compete with one another when you put them on. You used to work in higher education. So what, what were some of your roles there in higher education, you know, being that, you know, students saw you on campus, you know, dressed up being a professional black man? What, what, what were some of the things that you that you did on campus or in higher education? Um, so my role started off, you know, ironically, a lot, a few of my mentors were um, in enrollment management, um, you know, with deans, uh, vice presidents, you know, of enrollment. Um, directors and things of that nature. Uh, my my biological father again. He he ran the uh, recruitment um, and enrollment management department at Jackson State like thirty plus years until he retired as the dean of students at Jackson State. So I always admired what he did as far as traveling all over the world, uh, recruiting bright young minds. Um, as well as one of my other mentors, like my pops as well, his name Andre Heath. He was a recruiter. Um, for the science um, technological um, part of USM for many years um, and so on and so forth, man. So initially when I started off in, in, in uh, corporate America, um, I kind of got, I didn't necessarily get burnt out, but I, I just didn't want to be in the office every day for the most part. Um, so um, my last job in corporate America, I was um, working for a Fortune 100 company, which was New York Life. Um, as a as a uh, financial advisor and an insurance um, broker for the most part. I did that about two, two and a half years um, until I had the opportunity um, about a decade ago to come into higher ed. Um, and I worked off, um, worked initially at a two-year school, and then I worked my way up at, at an HBCU, which was Tougaloo. I started off in recruitment um, for a few years and, and, and left as one of the senior recruiters. And then I went to State University. University, where I became the director of um, the international affairs. And I was at Grambling for about three years and some change. I traveled all over the world, um, had a, you know, a department um, as far as people that, that I don't like to say work under me, but, you know, I had people that helped, I would say, facilitate my job and my duties a lot easier for the most part. Um, and then I went to Stillman College in Tuscaloosa and uh, was there a couple of years and um, did the same thing, was over the international department. Um, at Stillman, I actually had the opportunity to become dean for a short-term period, um, which was, was pretty cool. Um, I was kind of like the third, fourth in command at the school up, up under the president. And um, those really been my roles um, in higher education, which spanned almost over 10 years, um, mostly as being the, the director of international affairs. Um, and I would, you know, recruit um, a lot of our bright minds from all over the world to come to these institutions to get a better education and also to give their family 
the opportunities to, um, you know, have an advancement within um, their family's legacy when it came to education. You know, a lot of countries outside of America, education is very important, you know, very, very important. And I'm not saying it's to kind of like dismiss our students here, but we're spoiled. We really are um, in comparison to a lot of students that I've met all over the world. You know, I've been to the Middle East plenty of times. I've been all through the Caribbean. I've been to South America. I've been to Mesoamerica. I've been to Europe. Um, I've been I've been a lot of places, man. Um, I've actually had the opportunity to get that position because I was so well traveled um, before that. Um, you know, I was fortunate, even though I'm from the Mississippi Delta, um, I saw a lot more than the Mississippi Delta growing up. My family and I, we traveled all over the world, man. What would you say right now, given that you've had that background in higher ed and when it comes to education now in a COVID environment, what would you tell like the college students that are that are in school now trying to obtain their degrees? And I would tell them to be very specific on what they're trying to do and let this this environment and this climate be the catalyst on how they're going to shape their career endeavors coming into the next five years and 10 years. Because one thing I learned um, during COVID, but also when COVID first hit, I kind of knew it was going to be like this back in January. You know, I, I have, you know, friends and family that live all over the world and um Back back in December, man, of last year, man, I was getting messages that, you know, over here in America, you know, I'm pretty sure a few people knew, but I knew it was going to get this bad, man. I really, really did. And um, I remember when everything started to shut down over here, probably around the second, third week of March, because I just got back from Mexico and um, I had to basically reorganize and rearrange like my goals for the year. Cause I'm kind of like <laughs> what I thought was important. Like this, this, this is useless. <laughs> you know right. what I'm saying? Cause, cause I, I can't go nowhere. You know, I can't Absolutely. go nowhere. I can't see anybody, you know? So, and after a month or two um, of just being, you know, in a higher setting, you start to realize like, man, this technology that we're using, this is from the shift. This is a paradigm shift. You know, we're from a, we're finna start to take on new ways on how we communicate and how we engage one another and how business is going to be conducted and how transactions are going to be conducted when it comes to, when it relates to business. So long story short, man, I would tell, you know, um, I would tell, you know, all students who are in college or who are coming into college, man, to make sure that you learn during this COVID environment a how transactions and how business is going about how people conduct meetings how we actually communicate and how we engage right now as human beings because this is the catalyst on how we're going to from here on out communicate and how we're going to engage um a lot of corporate offices are going to be shut down now because they realize people can work from home and be productive <laughs> you know like there's no reason for anyone to come in to you know the office and be here eight nine hours to do work when they can do it at home considering that you know you you urge college students now or even those coming in to kind of start to set goals for their futures you know obviously we just had a presidential election and you know in january of 2021 we will have another uh president you know entering into the white house 
how much will that change the state of the country? And and, and just in terms of, you know, for college students and just people in general, how, how do you think this will help the country make strides? Um, I, so there's pros and cons to everything. And I, I like to always evaluate things on the cons first and then what are the pros that comes from that. Typically, a recession is always you know, we hit a mile during the, the, the pandemic, but right. typically every time a Republican, a Republican leaves office, there's some type of shift in the economy. There's always a small recession or depression that comes after a Republican does that. Now I won't go into, you know, the reason why it happens, but I would just challenge everyone to study history of probably the last 30 years of when Republican presidents leave office a recession always hits the, the, the economy. Right. Um, you, you saw it with Reagan in 88, um, Miley when Bush left, um, Clinton came in for eight years and you know it was a mild one when he left, but really not so. Bush came in in 2000, the son did, 2011, 2008. We had another huge recession, which was a depression. And that was the first time as an adult, I was just graduating from college where I got introduced to the real world because I lost my job in 2008 because of the recession, um, which was the housing bubble. Right. Um, and then you came in and you had, you know, President Obama for the um, next eight years. Um, he got the economy back, you know, on track. Um, the economy has been awesome since Trump been in office itself when the pandemic hit. Um, but be sure, be rest assured that, you know, the economy will take a small dip. Um, and that just comes with the change of powers, man. You know, for the most part, it does. Um, the, the thing that really kind of fears, um, scares me the most um, about just how divisive and divided the country is, which is always been, but it's just, it's more evident now, um, uh, really just on, on the domestic terrorist side. Um, far as you know, some of the notions of what President Trump's put out there, um, you know, he has a, a base that I'm afraid to say will would do any and everything for him, you know, for the most part. So, and I say that that's just that's just speaking about and referencing, you know, of of people having to be on guard to protect themselves, you know, financially and physically. Um, but the good things I think that will come about within the shift of power, man, is that you're, you're going to have a lot of more, a lot more policies that will be open to people outside of, I would call privileged white folks, <laughs> um, for the most part. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully, um, the, 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 uh, Pell Grant, um, uh, will be expanded a lot more. So a lot of students, to, you know, that comes from, you know, um, lower class, you know, um, and probably middle class households that, you know, they can be able to afford um, a college education. Um, and also those who are interested in the STEM areas that really have the grades can actually, you know, go to school for free, you know, for the most part. So those are things that I hope, um, you know, we can actually have an increased um, support on when it comes to, you know, on the education side for students as well. Um, with this new um, administration, for the most part, with um, Biden and Harris, you know, I think they're um, they will have a cabinet that that will look like America for the most part. So hopefully, we can get some representation um, within America how how it actually looks for the most part. 
And and when you say speaking of you know having a cabinet administration under Biden and Harris from a uh, from a country standpoint, taking a let's take a look at the state of Mississippi, and we just had a big race um, here um, sure. between Cindy Hyde Cindy Hyde Smith and Mike Espy, and you know I've I talked to a lot of people. And, you know, this was obviously SB second time running against Cindy Hyde Smith. And, you know, a lot of Mississippians that I've talked to, you know, some wanted Cindy Hyde Smith to win. Some wanted Mike Espy to win. But knowing the outcome that happened with obviously Cindy Hyde Smith uh, being victorious on the second time around, what does that say for the state of Mississippi? Um. You know, I'm a very optimistic person, even though I'm a very practical person. Um, the the practical part in me, the pragmatic side of me is, you know, shit happened. You deal with it. You have to move forward. Right. Um, the optimist in me is that I feel that I've, I've known um, Secretary um, Agriculture SB um, most of my whole life. You know, I was very active on his first campaign. I was active behind the scenes as much as I could this time just due to the pandemic and my wife being pregnant, um, you know, just taking precautions there. Um, but what I think you, we can take from um, Mr. Espy's campaign is that he really had, he's recharged the Democratic Party here in the state of Mississippi. Before then, I mean, if you look now, we don't have no statewide Democrat in elected positions. Um, Jim Hood was the last one when he was the Attorney General for the most part. Right. But if you look at the numbers, um, you know, he really has energized the party where hopefully you can get some Democratic support from the national campaign, the national committee as far as Democratic Party to when these candidates run here, that they can get the support and notoriety um, on a nationwide, you know, I would say just magnifying glass saying, hey, you know, a Democrat does have a shot of winning a statewide election here. Um, if you just <laughs> look at the numbers, you know, for the most part. I feel that um, Mr. Espy could have won. Um, the numbers show that he could win. That's why he ran again. Um, voter participation, you know, was was record setting for the most part. It's just hard to turn over that more than 15 percent of white people in the state over on the Democratic side, you know, for the most part. You know, there's a disnomer that there's more black people in Mississippi than it really is, you know, for the most part. You know, I kind of tell everybody now, concentration wise. Yeah, we, we have the largest population of black people, I would say, in the country here in Mississippi. Um, majority are concentrated from where I'm from, which is the Mississippi Delta. But black people only make up about 35 percent of Mississippi's population total wise. So if you're looking at a statewide election, you know, Mike Espy has to get 35% of those eligible voters, and then he has to turn over at least 16% of those white voters, right? Right. And, you know, that within itself is, is, a, is, a, is a huge feat, but I don't think that it's impossible. And the reason being is because look at the state flag of how, how it was voted for. Right. I mean, it was voted for over 70 percent. Now you're talking about somebody that was shot. I didn't think it would. I thought it would be very like 60, 40 or 55, 45. But it was over 70 percent that say, hey, we need a new state flag, you know, for the most part. So I think he re-energized the Democratic Party here in the state. 
and those who are young and inspiring, inspiring, you know, politicians on the Democratic side, man, they really can take his blueprint and um, and 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 improve it to, um, you know, have a successful election. If people wanted to follow you on social media, how could they follow you? Um, you can follow me, man. I'm, I'm um, business wise on Instagram, Kyris Customs. It's K Y R I S K U S T O M S. Um, you can um, follow me on my Facebook. Um, if I if I don't accept your friend request on Facebook, it's because I'm at a max. You know, Facebook only let you have five thousand people, man. That's the personal side of me, so you know I kind of separate the two for the most part. But um, those are my two active social medias that you can find me on. Stay tuned for episode fourteen of the Red Diamond Report podcast. Until then, make sure to follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at the RDR Reports, and follow me on Twitter at Wilton Reports and on Instagram at Wilton Reports underscore.